Well, good afternoon, church. Afternoon, and thank you for joining us here today, this afternoon, where we get to open up to the Word of God together. And uh, the topic for today in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be opening up to is really a wonderful one that should be of extreme importance to all of us, considering that it's going to concern something in which all of us who are members of the body of Christ are quite acquainted with. That is the topic of the church, God's program where He has united us together as one body and one mind through His Son, Jesus Christ, where we get to come together to worship Him, to learn more about Him, and to serve, uh, serve one another and to serve Him ultimately uh, in the presence of, of each other. And so today we're going to be opening up to Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, verse 19 to 26, where we will be looking at a local church in the city of Antioch. It is a local church in the city of Antioch, and uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to just consider what is God doing in the midst of His church, and how is the church responding to what God Himself is doing throughout their midst. As we look at Antioch today in verse 19 to 26, we're going to see what we could call really the inception of the church in Antioch, and Luke will bring about many different things concerning the the church in Antioch as we continue through Acts chapter 11, but today, and today specifically, we'll look at the inception of the church in Antioch. And so in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 to 26, we'll read that, and then we'll go to God in prayer for understanding as to what His Word has to reveal to us today. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose." For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we open up to your word now that you would give us great wisdom and understanding to be able to not only take in what your word has to say to us today, but that we would also be able to apply it to our fellowship together. Lord, we know that you are still working in the midst of your church. We know that you are at work here in this place. And so as we come together now, I pray that we would have our minds just just totally uh, captivated by the truth that we see here today from this uh, early lesson from the church in Antioch. As as you were at work, God, and their responsiveness to what you were doing, God, may we also uh, do the same as as we ourselves gather together to worship you. Lord, we thank you for this privilege to be able to open up to your word now, and I pray that as we go through what your word has to declare to us, that you would bless the hearing of both the hearer and also of the application of it in our daily lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the expansion of God's church is something that which should bring immense joy to all believers. This is something that we see happening here in Acts chapter 11, where upon Barnabas entering into the city of Antioch and seeing the expansion of the church there, it brought great joy and gladness to his heart. Really, the expansion of God's church is such a wonderfully beautiful, beautiful thing. 
This is, in fact, what Luke has spent all of the book of Acts up to this point, and he will continue to do so as we continue through Acts. This is what Luke has presented throughout these pages of Scripture. It is the expansion of God's church, how God has moved among the midst of his people to be able to bring forward his plan of redemption, bringing many into salvation to his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, as we would go back looking at just a summary of what we've done thus far up to this point in Acts chapter 11, we would see that not only has God expanded his church, <coughs> excuse me, but he has also shown that he will not leave his church. He will continually uphold his church as they continue to proclaim the gospel message in the city that they are in. Now, as we think about our study here, beginning in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 8, what the Lord Jesus Christ said to the disciples as he was going to ascend up to the Father was this. He said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And it was upon the Spirit's filling of the believers there in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, with power that the church continued to expand at a tremendous rate. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we read that the church had up to 3,000 members added in one day on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached and proclaimed the gospel message to the Jews there in the city as they were celebrating the Feast of Pentecost. Beyond that, if we were to go forward into Acts chapter 4, we would see that there was 5,000 members added to the church, just men alone. And so given that it was just men alone that he mentions in Acts chapter 4, we would know that there was probably about 20,000 members in the church at this time. God was rapidly expanding his church. They were growing in a tremendous, tremendous rate. Think about what 20,000 people is like. It is roughly the size of Madison Square Garden or the Staples Center or Crypto God. Crypto.com Arena, as it's called now. It's how many people were in this local fellowship there in the city of Jerusalem as God was expanding his church. After Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for lying to the Spirit of God, another summary tells us in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And at this point, it had become just so, so much of an expanse of God's moving and bringing about salvation to his church that they just were not able to keep track any longer. And so upon Acts chapter 5, verse 14, where he said there were multitudes of both men and women that were being added into the church, as we continued, we would see that it was no longer just the people that were being added, the numerical amount, but the regions in which the people were being added to the church in. And so as they were, had, uh, had to flee from Jerusalem due to the persecution at the hands of the, uh, well, he was at that point Saul, but later becoming the Apostle Paul, we know that the church had to expand into throughout Judea, but also into Samaria. They had to expand, and they expanded so rapidly there that Peter and John came to check to see what was going on as God was moving in that place. And as Peter and John saw, God was adding numerically massive amounts of numbers to his church. God has said that he would build his church, he would expand his church, and he was doing just that. Now, make no mistake about it, it was not merely that God was just uh, numerically expanding his church. He certainly did that, but he was also growing his church with spiritual maturity. And when we say that God expands his church, we're not merely just saying that he is expanding it in uh, size, but we are also saying that we are expanded in our spiritual growth. We are not merely just being added to the church so that God could just bring a number of people to himself to say, this is how many people I have in my church, but rather God has set us apart for his church for his purposes, that we would bring glory to his name. 
And so as he was calling these people out from Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, as we see where they are now here in this region of Antioch, we note that God was not just numerically expanding his church, but he was bringing about unity in his church. Love was being had for the body in the church. Believers are being edified. Leaders are being built up into the church, and there are many leaders being brought into the different regions in which the churches were being established. Worship, as we saw last week, was a main priority in the church. There is a tremendous amount of work that God is doing in his church, as we have seen it up to this point in Acts chapter 11. And tonight, or today will be no different. God is going to continue to expand his church. God is going to continue to bring about a wondrous work in the life of his church. And as I have mentioned, we should expect this to be the case. We should expect that, as Luke, in the introduction of his letter, said he was going to write about the expanse of God's church to the power of God, that we should see how God has been expanding his church. At the purpose of his letter, if we read it in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke tells Theophilus, who he's written this letter to, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have began, or I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, which, as we learned, was just another way of saying this is what he did back in the Gospel of Luke, in which Luke wrote to Theophilus. Now this is what Jesus is continuing to do as he is continually at work in the life of his church. God is at work building his church. You say, what does this mean to all of us? What does this mean to us? Sure, this is happening in Acts chapter 1 all the way to Acts chapter 11 where we are today, but, but how does this have any concern in our life? Well, the Word of God is written to cause for us to think. It is written to cause for us to think and to not only think, but to put questions in our mind in order that we can not only learn more about who God is and how He operates, but also it brings about this idea of how His great power is at work in our lives to lead us. You see, if we are God's church, and if we are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are God's church. We should have a desire within us to to ask questions about why is it that God is doing these things in the midst of his church? How is it that God should have me to respond in his church? Why is it that, that, that I, a sinful human, have been brought out of this world and into this light that God has brought me in in his church? Why has God done these things? You see, God's word causes for us to think on not man-centered things, but rather God-centered things. And as we approach the word of God, whether it is today or tomorrow or, or whether it was yesterday, we should always be thinking as we are taking in the word of God in order that we would be able to have our thoughts no longer centered on the things of this world, but on the things of God and God alone. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 to 10, Paul writes this. He, he, he gives this, this great emotion towards just setting aside everything in this world, all of the worldly wisdom that he himself had obtained to count it all as loss for the riches that he has gained in Christ. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
Now, as I have mentioned, the Word of God should cause for us to think. One of the wonderful truths that we're going to see today is that as we open up to the Word of God, there are a number of questions that we can find ourselves asking about this particular passage here in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 to 26. Asking ourselves, what is God doing here in the church in Antioch? How did they get here? Why is Barnabas sent here? Why are some going only to the Jews and others going to share the gospel with the Gentiles? How is the church responding to the work that God himself is doing. A number of questions should fill our mind as we open up to this passage here today, recognizing that these questions will not go unanswered if we submit to the power of the Holy Spirit to gain wisdom as to the answers to these questions before us. You see, as we open up to this passage today, I believe that it will fill our hearts and our minds and our church with God-centered thoughts, God-centered wisdom, which will lead us to be a church that is operating not on the opinion of man, but rather through the power and the will of God as we surrender to the word that he has declared for us today. And so as we open up to this passage, and as we have read it once already, we will read it in just a few moments once again, we must be considering these questions that I have mentioned. What is God doing in his church? Why Antioch? Why has he brought a church to Antioch? Why is the local church being established here? What are they doing as he has established them? All of these questions should be filling our minds, and we're going to answer them under two points. The first point is stated in the fact that I have said that God works to build his church. That's the first point. We're going to see how God works to build his church. Secondly, we're going to see the responsiveness of the church to what God himself is doing. So God will work to build his church and then the responsiveness of the church to what God himself is doing in that church. It's really a wonderfully practical passage for us to apply not only to our own fellowship but to the church at large today. Now, before we look at those two points, what I want us to just consider is this region of Antioch. This region of Antioch, where the believers themselves have headed up to, has been, they, they have headed up there because, as we read in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 and 20, they were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Now, if you remember in Acts chapter 8, Luke mentioned the same thing. The church was scattered over the persecution that arose in uh, Stephen's martyrdom at the hands of the Apostle Paul. Well, previously it was not the Apostle Paul, but also the Jewish leaders of that day who really hated Stephen and just martyred him, completely stoning him with stones, killing him because they did not approve of what he had said to them. And if we were to look back in Acts chapter 8, we would see that the church went to regions of Judea and Samaria. But that was not all the places that they went to. Instead, they, considered, they continued traveling northward beyond the region of Judea and Samaria to where we read today here in Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And this city, Phoenicia, was a Mediterranean seacoast area of Syria, which had Tyre and Sidon as its main uh, cities in which it uh, had. And then you would also have this place called Cyrus, which was an island about 100 uh, miles north of Jerusalem that the individuals had went to as well. But he doesn't really mention anything beyond that about those two places, but he does uh, continue to mention about this place called Antioch. Where was Antioch? What was the purpose for Antioch being mentioned? Why does he choose to spotlight Antioch instead of the other two places of Phoenicia and also of Cyprus? Well, we don't really know, but what we do know is that he has chosen to spotlight Antioch. So just a brief idea about what the city of Antioch was like during this time. 
The city of Antioch was a region that was uh, north of Jerusalem, about 300 miles. 300 miles north, and you would get uh, to the city of Antioch. And it was within the city of Antioch that it was the third largest city throughout all of the Roman Empire. You had Alexandria in Egypt, and you also had the city of Rome, which were the two largest cities. But Antioch was the third largest city, and it was roughly about 100,000 people on the low end to upwards of about 600,000 people on the high end of the estimates. It was a rather large, large city. And within this city, given that it was so large, it was a melting pot of all these different types of cultures. You had people from the desert, you had people from the Mediterranean, you had people that believed in idols, you had people that believed in the one true God, you had people that were atheists, you had people from all different works and all different walks of life. It was a very, very cosmopolitan type of city, cultures intersecting in this one region in which really was a fertile ground for the gospel to be able to spread since they themselves in that region region had completely abandoned the one true God. If you think about the city of Antioch and how I've been describing it, it really is similar to the city that we find ourselves to be in today in Los Angeles. It is a melting pot of cultures, beliefs, ideas, sin, you name it, we got it here in Los Angeles. And you can imagine that in Antioch they had it as well. To the extreme of their idolatry, to the extreme of their sinful worship, was the fact that there was about five miles outside of the city, there was a place that was called Daphne. And this place called Daphne was known for its worship of the gods Artemis, Apollos, and Astarte, with Astarte worship being given over to prostitution. And it was in this, this worship to the uh, goddess Astarte where they would go into this, uh, this field full of trees, much like a park today, where you would have this cult-like prostitution going on, where people could go to whet their sexual appetite in any which way they wanted to do so. There was a great deal of sexual immorality in this place, pride, self-centeredness, completely and total abandonment from the one true God you would find there in that city of Antioch. And as I mentioned, this would be a city that was ripe for harvest as the gospel was going to be presented there where many who had fallen away from God, who had left their first love, the one true God, whether they knew him at some point or they never knew him to begin with, where, where the gospel would be able to expand rapidly because there were so many broken people who were searching for answers and the church had the one true answer, which is salvation alone through Jesus Christ. And so you can imagine that the gospel was going to expand at a rapid, rapid pace. And it did. And as we see here, it did. God was working to build his church. And he chose to spotlight the work that he did here in the city of Antioch. And so coming to our first point, we see that this idea is presented throughout verse 19 to 26 and, and continuing through the book of Acts that God will work to build his church church. God is the one who will work to build his church. Now, in the case of our passage here today, there are two things that lead us to understand this vital, vital truth for all of us in the body of Christ, that God will work to build his church. The first way that we know God is going to build his church is stated in verse 21 when it says that the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. This is an idiom from both the Old Testament and the New Testament to state that God was at work powerfully bringing about his purposes in the life of that church, that local church there in the city of, in the city of Antioch. God is the one who will bless his church. God is the one who will reap the harvest for his church. And we see him doing it there in Acts chapter 11, verse 21, saying that the hand of the Lord was upon them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. 
Now, I want us to note what this idea is, this idiom that is presented in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is. The hand of the Lord can refer to his power to bless, and it can also refer to his power to pronounce judgment upon a region in which he is at work in. Going back to Joshua chapter 4, verse 19 to 24, we see God's hand of judgment being poured out upon, uh, where he's promising that his judgment will be poured out uh, uh, in verse 19 to 24. And it says this, The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever." This was a testimony that the people of Israel were to remember, and not only the people of Israel, but the people for all time to show the great power of God to pronounce judgment. And also in this, we see a pronouncement of blessing where God allowed for them to pass over that place at Gilgal, which they were. Now, also we see it even more uh, specifically, this hand of blessing of God uh, as the hand of the Lord is upon his people. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, when it says this, For on the first day of the month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. You see, God's hand of blessing was upon Ezra as he went to go and to teach the peoples of Israel. There are two ways in which we can take this passage in Acts chapter 11 according to the context of the passage. Was God's hand of judgment pronounced upon these people, or was God's hand of blessing being pronounced upon these people? Well, we know it is the latter because God's hand of blessing was upon these people producing salvation to the point where Barnabas, as he got there and began to serve this church, had to go on and grab Saul from Tarsus because the church had grown at such a rapid pace where he was not able to go and to serve these people in a way in which really would have helped them to the fullest extent uh, of, of, uh, of Barnabas's God-given abilities. He needed help because God's hand of blessing was powerfully, powerfully at work upon his church. You see, this is something that as a church we must take note of, this idea that God is going to work to build his church and that his hand of blessing or his hand of judgment can be surely applied to his church in the case of our lives, in the case of any life of a church. God is going to be at work building his church, pronouncing blessing and pronouncing judgment, not to condemnation, but to discipline us, to bring us into a place of worship and of complete and total surrender unto him. You see, we must note this as a church because it is often the case that given the day-to-day life of things, we often fail to remember that God is sovereignly at work in all aspects of our lives. Whether it is that He is sovereign in our salvation, He is sovereign in our sanctification, our glorification, we can often forget in the day-to-day things of life that God Himself is sovereignly at work 
to build his church. And what this generally produces within the church is sort of these man-centered ideas or ways in which we think that are going to be making us successful to build his church, bringing about entertainment or, or bringing about the opinions of man to try to produce some sort of growth in the church apart from the will of God. This often happens when we fail to realize that God really is the one who is going to build his church. And, and really the reason that we as sinful man, that even though we have been set apart by the Lord Jesus Christ, the reason that we ourselves cannot build God's church, well, is centered in the fact that it takes one being raised from spiritual deadness to be able to be brought to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot resurrect the dead, whether physically or spiritually. God alone is the one who is going to do that. And in the case of bringing about numbers to his church and spiritual growth in his church, that is something in which the power of God alone will bring about. We can't bring a dead man back to life. We cannot bring someone who is in a state of spiritual deadness back to life. It is impossible for us to do, but it is not impossible for God, and that is what God does as he builds his church. He brings those who were once dead to life in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 to 5 em- em- emphasizes this when it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were children, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, one who is dead, whether they are physically dead or spiritually dead, needs to be resurrected. They need to be brought back to life, and it is only God and his infinite power which is able to produce that. That is the same thing that goes for the church. It goes for, for the church where, where even if we desire to bring about salvation, even if we desire to bring about many commitments or professions of faith, the work of God must be on that individual's heart to bring them from death to life. Whether we have a spiritual revival or whether we have a revival service, we can produce all sorts of experiences. We can lead people to make an emotional profession of faith, but we cannot do the work of the Spirit of God in bringing the dead to life. We must always remember that in our church fellowship, that God is the only one who will bring his church to new life in Christ. He will build his church. Now, as I have said, we must not miss this given the fact that it is so often that the church today does. This, this idea that, yes, we wish to see many people saved. We desire to see many, many, many people saved. I love when someone commits their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm sure that all of you do. But the reality is, is we must not, in, in, in order to be able to produce these professions of faith, do uh, produce this in such a way that goes against the will of God in the pronouncing of the gospel message where they are called out of their sin and into new life in the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith. We must not try to seek professions of faith through an experience or through emotionalism or through this own man-centered idea in which we have come up with, which we think, well, this will really draw these individuals in. We'll draw them in with an experience, and then, well, when they come in with that experience, they'll want to be a part of the body of Christ and, and 
and, and then they'll stay with us forever. But the reality is, is if you produce an experience that is contrary to the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ, the means in which you brought that person in, well, those will be the means in which you must keep that individual within that fellowship. We must, if we are going forward with the gospel message, seeking to see God build his church, we must get on board with what he is doing in proclaiming the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I believe that the church in Antioch knew this. They didn't want to produce this emotionalism. They didn't wish to uh, bring about professions of faith through their own efforts, but rather what they did, and we note this here throughout this passage, where it simply just says, when they came to that place, they preached the Lord Jesus. They preached the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our efforts of evangelism, in our efforts of, of wanting to see the work of God in the midst of our church, if we preach anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not going forward in the way in which God has ordained for his church to go. We must preach the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see first that God is at work building his church in the fact that his hand of blessing is upon the church where he is bringing about salvation to many, many believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, we see that God's blessing is upon that church, that God is at work in his church in the remark of verse 23. In verse 23, Barnabas has been sent to Antioch, and we'll look more at that in just a brief while. But when Barnabas gets to Antioch, it says, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. You say, well, what does this go to show the fact that God himself is building his church? Well, it is true that God not only blesses his church with salvation, it is also true that God, in blessing his church with salvation, will also sustain his church by his grace. God will sustain his church by his grace. He does not merely just call a number of people out of darkness and into new life in Christ and just leaves them to their own devices, but rather he stays with them and he works within that midst through the power of his spirit, and that is the grace of God in the life of that church. Now, given the fact that the grace of God is invisible, we might say, well, how do you know that the grace of God is happening in that church? Well, as Barnabas saw it, we note that the grace of God had its effects, the effects of the grace of God are readily seen. We may not be able to see it visibly. We may not be able to see uh, uh, visibly the grace of God in, in a certain type of, of, of spiritual mode where it gets poured out upon the church, but we can certainly see the effects of the grace of God in the life of his church. We can see God's grace being poured out in the midst of his fellowship. And you say, well, what does this look like? What does it look like to say that God's grace was being poured out upon his church? Well, in the first, it is that God is building his church through salvation. As we know in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourself it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We know that the grace of God was seen in the fact that many people were being added to the faith. But even beyond that, we would also say that there was great unity in that church, since the unity that is produced within the fellowship is a unity that is produced through the Spirit of God who we have been baptized in uh, upon our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only was there unity, but there was love, there was care, there was concern for one another, there was reconciliation within the body. There was a great amount of spiritual fruit being produced in this church. And when Barnabas saw it, Barnabas was glad at it. He knew that God's grace was present in that church as he saw the fruit of the Spirit in that fellowship. 
You see, church, it is an incredible thing to see God working and building up his church. And really the tendency is if you come and you see the fellowship, you see the unity, you see the love, you see the care, you see the devotion, you see the concern that is had for the mutual respect of one another in the body of Christ, the tendency for us is to sit back and watch the grace of God at work. So it's just remarking upon, look at the love that they have for each other. Look at the care that they have for each other. Look at the worship that they are giving to this God. The tendency is to just, to just be amazed at the grace of God in the midst of his church. And that is a wonderful thing to do. But we must not allow for us to just sit on the sidelines and watch what God is doing. We must not, as we are just amazed at the work of God, mesmerized really at the work of God, allow for it to put us in a place where we just sit back and watch everyone else do all of the work. We must not allow for that to say, well, wow, God is doing a wonderful, wonderful work in this place. It's so wonderful what he is doing and say, well, it's great that he's doing it. Let's have him keep on, keep on doing it. You see, God has not built, about, built his church up where he is the only one who is bringing about the building up of his church. Sir, he is the one that sovereignly orchestrates the building of his church, but God has called each and every single one of us as members of his church to get on board with what he is doing to work for the mutual upbuilding of that body in which we find ourselves being members of. In the, in the local church, God has every single person placed in that church, not merely to just sit back and watch the work that God is doing, but rather, rather to have everyone get on board with what he is doing and to, to really manifest his glory in the midst of their fellowship, whether it's here at First Baptist Church of Hollywood or whether it's at another church down the street or up the road, wherever it is, the church of Jesus Christ, Though it is built by the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ has not left us to do nothing. Instead, he calls for us to get on board with what he is doing. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we see this sovereign, sovereign proclamation from the Lord where he says he's going to build his church. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is going to sovereignly build his church. Make no mistake about it, God is the one who will build his church church. But God has also said in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, these words, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so not only is it that God will build his church, but God has also commissioned us as his disciples to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God has said, I will build my church. I have all authority given unto me. Now then, go therefore as my disciples and build my church. It is this idea of God's sovereignty being linked with man's responsibility. It is a very difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around completely, but it is constantly presented in the scriptures. God himself will build his church, but he calls for us to get on board with what he is doing as he, as he ignites us to live for him 
through the power of the Spirit of God. And I, and I bring this up to bring us to the second point of our passage here today, this idea that the church did not just sit back and say, wow, God, what a wonderful work that you are doing. It's amazing that many are being saved. It's amazing that many people are having their lives restored. It's amazing of the love and the care and the concern that everyone has for one another and really keep on doing the good work. Keep up the good work, God. They don't do that here, but rather what we see happening here is the church responding to the work that God is doing, getting on board with what he himself is at work doing throughout the midst of that fellowship in Antioch. And there's a number of things that we see them doing here, and we'll reread the text to, re- to remind ourselves of what is happening here. But we would say that the church has not only continued evangelizing as they see God bringing others to faith, they are getting others involved. The church at Jerusalem is extending oversight to this new church in Antioch. Beyond that, you also would have this fact that there is great joy with a large amount of numbers being added to this church fellowship. There is a number of things that the church is doing in response to the fact that God himself is at work. And there's just three things that I want us to consider for the rest of our time together to see, to see really what is it that we are to do knowing that God is at work building up his church. And again, if we are his church, which we are his church, we know without a shadow of a doubt that God is going to work to build up this church. God is going to be at work to build up this church. And you say, well, okay, I know that he's going to do it. What does he expect for me to do in response to his work? Well, there are three things here in this passage. First, the church responded by continuing to evangelize the lost, by encouraging the saved, and by discipling the saved. They responded to what God was doing through evangelizing the lost, encouraging those who were being saved, and by discipling those who were being saved. This, too, is our responsibility as we see the work of God being done in our church. And so let's reread the text here just so we can see it all and look at these three three points. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, a number of things being presented here, but to summarize it, they were evangelizing the lost, they were encouraging those who were saved, and they were discipling those who were saved. Now, in the first, we see that they were evangelizing the lost. And, and we just read it here. We read that the fact that they were, some of them were going to Jews, some of them were going to Gentiles, and the Lord was blessing that work, and many were being brought into salvation because Luke tells us twice that a great number of people turned to the Lord. So large that Barnabas had to go and get some work to help him with the work of ministry that he himself was participating in. The church saw that God was at work, and they responded to the work that God was doing by continuing to evangelize to see God bring salvation to the lost. 
Do you know that one of the greatest motivators for the Apostle Paul and for this church as we see it here, the greatest motivators to evangelism is in the fact that God is going to build his church. That God has sovereignly set apart for himself a people in whom he has set apart before the foundation of the world, before they have done anything good or bad, before they had even breathed a breath in their lungs, God has set apart a people unto himself, his church, his elect. And that truth throughout the New Testament has spurred on, it has really ignited, ignited the church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They were not motivated to, God, to, to, to evangelize because they felt that they were great evangelists. They were not motivated to evangelize because, well, they felt that, well, I have a pretty good persona and people are going to respond to me. They were motivated to evangelize because they knew that God would sovereignly work to build up his church. Now I say that Paul was especially motivated by this because he remarks upon it in the second book of, to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 to verse 10. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's motivation to evangelize, Paul's motivation to face all sufferings, all persecutions, the loss of all things because he was an evangelist for the Lord Jesus Christ, his motivation was in the fact that he knew, he knew that God would produce salvation in his elect. He didn't know who the elect were. He didn't know who the elect were even when he was talking to them. But he did know that God had an elect people unto himself, and that motivated him to evangelize. In spite of all loss, in spite of all of the persecutions that might come, the sufferings that might come, he was motivated to evangelize because he knew that God would lead many to salvation. And so we ask ourselves this as a question. What spurs us on as a church to evangelize? What motivates us to evangelize? What, what is it within us that says, I want to go and evangelize today? What is the reason that we are, are, are going about, whether it's on Wednesday or in our own personal time, why are we evangelizing? Now, I'm not saying that because God is sovereign over salvation that that should alone be our motivator, but it should be on the top of the list that should prevent us, that should present us in a way in which that we are just going to go in spite of no matter what might happen, we are going to go and share the gospel because God is going to save his elect. God is going to save those who we bring the gospel to. You see, I hope that today, as we, as we think about this, this fact here, that as we as a church are to respond to the work that God is doing, and one of the things that God does is saves the lost, we would be motivated by this truth, this truth that God is elect in bringing salvation to those, or God is, God is sovereign in bringing his elect to salvation should motivate us, should really spur us on to evangelize, to share to whomever it is that we walk up to or whomever it is that we make acquaintance with, just, just sharing the gospel with them, knowing that God is the one who is going to bring them from death to life. And he does so as we are ambassadors for his message, his gospel, and we declare it to them. You see, for me, as I go to evangelize, and, and, I, and I'm sure this is the same for some of you as well, the fact that, that I, I even, even me, that I can go and evangelize in my own faults, with my own anxieties, with my own worries, with my own doubts, that none of those things matter when it comes to me taking the gospel message to the people. So long as I am faithful to the gospel message, God will produce the work in which he himself 
is going to do. That is just really comforting for me, and I, and I hope that it is comforting for you as well. You don't have to be a great evangelist. You don't have to be able to proclaim the message. You don't have to have a bold personality. You don't have to be what the world thinks you have to be to share the gospel to people. All you have to be is faithful to the work that God is doing and evangelize the lost, knowing that he will bring, he will bring his people to salvation. Again, I ask us, what causes us to evangelize? What, what causes us to evangelize? And, and, and maybe bringing it even further, will you evangelize now knowing this truth? Will you evangelize now knowing that God will sovereignly bring about salvation to his elect as we bring the gospel message to them? Now, moving on to the second response of the church, which really we see exemplified in verse 22 to 24, we see that the church was encouraging the new believers. Not only were they evangelizing the lost in order that many would come to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, but when the new believers came to the church, came to their fellowship, they were encouraging, encouraging these believers. Now, we see this really personified in the man by the name of Barnabas, who was sent to Antioch by the disciples, by the apostles at Jerusalem. And, and Barnabas really pre- presents a, really a characteristic that should always be present in the church. In the church that we have, in the church that is up the street or around the corner, we must have encouraging, encouraging people in the church who are not only encouraging new believers, but encouraging many in the body of Christ. Many people must be encouraging others in the body of Christ. And, and we'll look to that in just a few moments, why it is necessary that we do that before we do that, I just want us to, again, reintroduce this man Barnabas that they present to us here in verse 22 to 24, uh, and when it says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, if you've been with us over the past year or so as we've been looking at the book of Acts, you probably have heard of Barnabas uh, twice up to this point. He was mentioned in Acts chapter 4, and he was also mentioned in Acts chapter 9. And what really stands out about Barnabas is that he is a great encourager. In fact, his real name is Joseph, but because of his encouragement that was given to the saints back in Acts chapter 4, the disciples in turn no longer called him Joseph. They in turn started calling him Barnabas, which literally translates to son of encouragement. Barnabas was a great, great encourager. He encouraged people. And it doesn't take much effort to do. It does not really take much effort to encourage someone. You, you notice something about them and you encourage them uh, because of that. Barnabas was such a great encourager. If you look back to Acts chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul uh, presented himself to the believers at Jerusalem, as we know, Paul had a history. Many people were terrified of, of Paul. They said, well, how are we sure this guy's not trying to destroy the church here in Jerusalem? The person who took Paul under his wings got to know him and then introduced him to the people at Jerusalem was Barnabas. Barnabas saw past the past of the Apostle Paul. He took him under his wing. He got to know about him, and then he encouraged others to welcome Paul into the church at Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 9. Barnabas Barnabas was the perfect man for the job here at this new church here in this region of Antioch. Not only because he was from Cyprus, and there were many men who came from Cyprus up to Antioch as believers, so he would have known some of the people, but even more so than this, they sent Barnabas because he was an encourager. 
He was an encourager. And you say, well, why does this matter? Why do we need encouragers in the church? Why did this church need someone to encourage them? Well, think about it for a moment. Imagine back to the days when you were a new believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe you are a new believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the tendency for a new believer in Christ to have this zeal about themselves, this fire for the Lord, which often will dissipate when struggles come or trials come or persecution comes. There's this zeal that they have once had for the Lord, this fire that they have had for the Lord often begins to, to dwindle down into nothingness, and they just kind of go off in their own. They either fall away from the church, as we read in the parable of the sower, or they continue in the church, but they are very ineffective, unfaithful witnesses because they just are discouraged at trials or worries or difficulties that come in their life. New believers especially need that encouragement because, well, they're going to get discouraged. They're going to get discouraged in the church. Not only is that the case for new believers in the church, that they might get discouraged because of trials that might come, but it is also the case that many times new believers come into the church with all of their zeal, with all of their fire for the Lord, and that type of fire is not reciprocated by some of us mature believers who say, well, this guy's just a fanatic, or they're just, you know, they're just caring about themselves, and so we kind of just brush them off as someone like, well, well, let's see what you are like in 10 years from now, and we discourage them by doing that. And so they need encouragement to keep that fire for the Lord, to keep that zeal for the Lord, to try those new things for the Lord that maybe some of us mature believers might not be willing to do. And so there's many reasons why a new believer might get discouraged. Well, and and this church here in Antioch was a new church. This was the inception of the church in Antioch. And so they needed encouragement to happen within that fellowship. And you say to yourself, well, what does it mean to encourage someone? Well, as we read here, the the word actually is exhorting someone. And the word exhorting is just a a, a more lively way to say encourage someone. It it presents how how much immediacy was given in the encouragement that Barnabas gave to this church at Antioch. He was immediately encouraging them. He was exhorting them. And you say, well, how did he encourage them? How did he encourage these believers? And then in turn, how am I to encourage a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether they're a new believer or a mature believer? How do we encourage one another in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's so simple. It is so, so simple. We don't have to have these profound words. We don't have to just give them this wonderful explanation about why they must continue. All that we have to do to encourage our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ is to point them to the Lord, to point them to Jesus Christ, not to ourselves, not to their circumstances, not to future blessings, but rather just to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Barnabas does here. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's in verse 23. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose purpose. It's all we got to do when it comes to encouraging one another. And, and sure, there are a number of ways in which we can do that, but if you are seeking to encourage someone, or if you need encouragement, if we point them to anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ, they are going to end up being discouraged again, let down, set aside, ignored, all of these things in which happens when in our best efforts we try to encourage them in a way in which the Lord would encourage them, but Truth be told, the Lord is the only one who can bring a lasting encouragement to these believers, to any believer really for that matter. In trials, in sufferings, in blessings, in great disappointment, with great anxiety, great doubts, great worries, any, anything that comes the believer's way, the Lord Jesus Christ is ready and willing to encourage them to continue on in the faith. 
Thinking about how Barnabas points them to the Lord Jesus Christ reminds me back of the book that we studied just prior to our study in the book of Acts, the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a book full of encouragement. And what the author of Hebrews does is not encourage them based on external things or external ideas. He doesn't encourage them by saying, look how good you are. He encourages them by saying, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. These were people who were with one foot in Judaism and one foot in Christianity at the verge of apostasy, falling away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he does to encourage them is just to simply say, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than Moses. He is better than Joshua. He is better than any old covenant priest. He has brought about a better covenant, the new covenant that is written in Jeremiah. Not only has he done that, but he has also brought about a better sacrifice, namely himself. He brings about better promises in which you will have salvation for eternity if you place your trust and faith in him. If you look to Jesus Christ, you will be encouraged. If you look to Jesus Christ, past your faults, past your worries, past whatever it is that is getting you down in your life, if you look to Jesus Christ, you will be encouraged. That's what Barnabas is saying here. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. Now, it's not only that they must just, we just say, well, well, just think about Jesus here. Well, that's not going to do anyone any good. We must tell them about Jesus when we say, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must call them to a steadfast purpose to continue to look for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just say, well, okay, look to the Lord now, and then, well, things get tough. You look at your feet, you get tripped up, you fall down again, and then you got to look to Jesus again. You know, this idea is really prevalent in the book of Hebrews, this idea of the race analogy. This race analogy where it says, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, consider, run this race with all endurance, that's in Hebrews chapter 12 where it's said. And what he pictures is a runner who is looking to the prize. And as a runner runs, they do not look down. They do not look to this side or that side or behind them. They look forward at the Lord Jesus Christ. If they look down or they look to the left or the right or behind, they're going to slow down or they're going to trip up and hurt themselves. Same thing is true for us with looking to Jesus when we exhort people to do so. Keep looking at him. Don't just look at him for a second and say, okay, things are good now. I don't need to look at him anymore. I'll come back and look at him again when things get bad. Look to Jesus in the blessings. Look to Jesus in the disappointments. Look to Jesus in all aspects of life, and your life will be encouraged. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, to give us the reason why we can always look to Jesus, he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. If you need encouragement yesterday, he'll give it to you. You need encouragement today, he'll give it to you. You need encouragement forever, Jesus Christ will give it to you. And as I was preparing this sermon this week, I, a song popped to my mind, the song All in All. You know, you are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. And as we sing that song, as we, as we sing those lyrics, I think about how worship can just bring us to really see the beauty of our Lord. Well, that song just truly reminds us just how wonderful the Lord is. He is all that we need to encourage us. And so that is what we must do. If you're seeking to encourage a brother or someone needs encouragement and you don't know what to say to them, point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, what we see them doing in response to what God himself was doing is in the fact that they were discipling the saved. 
The disciples, these new believers, they not only need to be encouraged, they also need to be discipled. They need to be discipled. This is of utmost importance for all churches today. We must be discipling the new believers and even anyone else. I still am being discipled myself. We must also be, always be teaching one another the truth of God's word. Look to what they did in verse 26. It says, and when he had found him, that is uh, Barnabas finding Saul, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. This is simply saying that in response to God bringing many into the church, they discipled them. They discipled the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, discipleship is such an important factor in the life of the church, given the fact that it can be done in so many ways. And it, it's and that its application is, is, is always, always uh, relevant to the life of a believer. This, this, this discipleship, this discipling one another can be done through the preaching of the word. It can be done through the teaching of the word in Bible studies. It can be done through small groups. It can be done through women's groups or men's groups. It can be done in any which way we gather together. We can be discipling one another, which really simply means teaching one another the truth from the word of God teaching them to not only know the truth about God, to, to know their God, to know the one in whom has saved them from their sins, to know the one in whom is coming back again to redeem them and bring them to himself for all of eternity, to teach them to avoid the sin and the suffering that is brought about in this world through sin, to be teaching the church the truth from God's word. You can imagine that the, for the church in Antioch here, this was of vital, vital importance. As I mentioned, this region of Antioch was a cesspool of sin. There was prostitution, sexual immorality, pride, idolatry, uh, uh, self-satisfying desires, no worship of God, no people were turning to God. Here was a church that had never existed in this region of Antioch that immediately uh, upon its inception began to teach these new believers because they knew how important it was. Here was a group of people who had just come out of the worldly, worldly, the world in which they were in with all of its lies, with all of its deception, with all of its deceit, and they needed to be taught the truth from God's word. They needed to be grounded in their faith. And the only way that we can ground anyone in their faith is through the proclamation of the word of God, whether it is the preaching, the teaching, the uh, one-on-one discipling process that can happen. We must be teaching the word of God. We must be learners, and we must be teaching others to be learners as well, learners of the things of God. You see, for this church, there was no way that biblical illiteracy would have any place in that fellowship. There would be no place for biblical illiteracy in that fellowship. And if we were to look, which we don't have time to do, you will note that every time, uh, at least in the times in which I have read, the church in Antioch, as it continues, is always mentioned in a favorable light. And the reason that it is always mentioned in a favorable light is because of the fact that they were grounded in the truth from God's word. They were not biblically illiterate. They knew the truth from God's word. As we think about this in our present day, this, this idea that, that, that we must be discipling one another, that, that we must be focusing on discipleship, you would say to yourself, well, is this happening in the church today? Is the church being discipled today? Or is the church full of biblically illiterate Christians who do not know the God in whom 
they serve. This is a real problem that is plaguing the church today. Biblical illiteracy is plaguing the church today. And I'm not not talking about here, I'm talking about the church at large. The universal church does not know the God in whom they worship. And the reason for this is because false teachers abound, and many people who are in those churches with the false teachers don't know how to discern the truth, and therefore they are always led astray by the things of this world. They are always led astray by the things of this world. You say, well, well how, do, how do we know this? How do we know that the church deals with some biblical illiteracy in this day that we are in? Well, think about it. Division, false teaching, false teachers, bitterness, disputes, hatred for one another, hatred for the world, hatred for the body of Christ. There is just continual division in the church today, the universal church today, which really goes to show that these churches have not been grounded in the truth from God's Word. Now, don't mistake me. I'm not saying that if you are grounded in the truth of God's Word that there will never be disputes, but what I am saying is that a church that is grounded in the truth from God's Word will immediately work to resolve those disputes so that they do not continue and get worse within the midst of that fellowship, whether it is through church discipline or not. These churches, these biblically illiterate churches, which we can call them, are not disciplining the church when there's sin. They're not, they're not calling out false teaching. They're not doing the things in which God has called for His church to do from the beginning of days. They, they are not living their lives as a church that is responding to the work that God is doing. Instead, they're producing experiences where you have pastors get up and preach a sermon, not from the Word of God, but from a word in which they feel that they should say to the church that day. Preaching politics or policies or, or health, wealth, prosperity, whatever it is, they're churching everything except the Word of God, which alone has the power to bring new life in the life of that church, which alone will bring about the power that God will use to spur on His church to holiness and to be able to escape and avoid the false teachings. These pastors will stand up, they won't preach the Word of God, and if they do preach the Word of God, well, they'll, they'll preach something, but they only preach it in order to bring about a secular point in which they find themselves trying to make. Often Bible studies would consist of man's ideas and opinions on the state of the world today as opposed to just merely opening up to the Word of God and seeing what God has to say to His church. They're worrying about things of this world as opposed to what God Himself has already said to His church. Beyond that, you have small groups that are not made to discuss the things of God and rather really are social clubs which are filled with gossip and opinions. This idea, this, this idea that is often remarked, if you, if you ever are in a service, I, am, I may have said it as well too, this idea that, that many people during the Bible days were illiterate. They did not know how to read. And so that was why teaching was so important. That was why many people would come together and teach one another. They did not know how to read the Word of God. They needed someone to read it to them. And even as you continued uh, throughout the uh, church history, there were many people who did not know how to read the Word of God. This idea that there was an illiteracy among these people. Well, today... In America, at least, there are very, very few illiterate people who do not know how to read. But even in saying that, I would also say that there are many biblically illiterate people who know how to read, but who do not just open up the Word of God to see His truth displayed to them. And part of that problem comes from the leadership in the church, but it also comes from those who are just within the church who are going to satisfy their own desires, their own cares, their own worries, rather than getting to know their one true God. 
Now, don't mishear me here. I'm not calling on all of us as a church to be theologians or those who can teach a doctrinal discourse on all of the doctrines that we believe here at this church. But what I am saying for us as a church that we must be able to do, at the very least, we must be able to call out false teaching and false teachers. And not only that, we must also be able to be growing in a continual relationship with the one true God in whom we serve. At the very least, that is what we must be doing. We must know our God. And we must know those who are coming in the name of God who are misrepresenting his word. And so then God was doing a wonderful work in this local church in the city of Antioch. He was saving souls and his grace was seen in all that the church did. And the church in response to that, as we have seen, evangelized the lost, encouraged the saved, and discipled the saved. And you say, well, what does this result in? What did this result in? Notice there is one final thing that is said in verse 26, and it is so wonderful. It says, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. In Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. We say, well, what does this tell us? What does this tell us? Well, church, it is so very simple. What it tells us is that the community around them took notice of who they worshiped. The community around them noticed them, and even more importantly than that, they noticed Christ in them who they were proclaiming in the midst of their fellowship. You see, it was here that they were first called Christians from the outsiders. They were called the Christ people or followers of Christ or soldiers of Christ. This is where the church was first called Christians. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing. The world took notice of who they were. The world took notice of whom it was they served. And it it gave them an opportunity for witness unlike anything else the world had ever seen before. They didn't even have to introduce themselves. They knew, the world knew who they were. They said, there's those Christians again. There's those Christians Again, this church, in response to what God was doing, and in their love for one another, and in their evangelizing the lost, continually proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ, and in teaching of the words in which the Lord Jesus Christ had given to them, the world around them knew that they were Christians. They knew that they were Christians. I want us to just close by answering this question for our own fellowship. Does the world say that about us? Does the world say that about us here at the First Baptist Church of Hollywood? Does the world know that we are Christians? Does the world see that we are Christians in the fact that all that we ever talk about, the only good news that we have to bring to them is Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Does the world notice that we are Christians in our love for one another, which, is, which manifests itself in the encouraging of one another in the faith and caring for their needs and their concerns in which they have? Does the world know that we are Christians by our love for one another? And does the world know that we are Christians because we are not confused or confounded by the things of this world and the false teachings of our day, and rather that we are equipped by the word of God, to live in the truth in which God has presented to us for all time in his scriptures. Does the world know that we are Christians? Better yet, might I ask us this, do we want to be known as Christians? Do we want to be known as Christians? What do we want to be known as here in this city of Hollywood? What does our church, First Baptist Church of Hollywood, want to be known as to the city of Hollywood in which we find ourselves fellowshipping in? Do we want to be known as Christians? Well, if we wish to be known as Christians, then by God's grace, as he performs a work in our church, and as we respond to that through the evangelizing of the lost, the encouragement of the saints, and the discipling of the saints, we can be sure that the world will know 
that we are Christians. May it always be that we are Christ's church, just like the believers in Antioch and just like the believers for all time. Church, we are Christians. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that has been before us here today. Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us such a badge of honor that we are able to be called Christians, that we are yours, God. God, that even in our sin, you have, you have punished our sin on the cross through the death of your son, Jesus Christ, and by his righteousness, we have received the justification that we needed to be brought back into fellowship with you, God. And God, that you have just given us this wonderful, wonderful gift of being able to be called yours, whether by you or by the world, this badge of honor that we have, Lord, being called Christians is a badge in which we are so very thankful for. God, I pray that you would continue to, to, to instill within us, instill in us, in our fellowship with one another, this, this desire that you have given to this church here in Antioch. I know that we are not perfect, and I know that the church in Antioch was not perfect, but God, we know that through your power leading us, we will be able, we will be able to make an impact in our community, an impact not for ourselves, not for our name, but for the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray these things. Amen.